0: lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we use 1 John 1.9, if necessary to be in fellowship with the Lord, filled with the Spirit, so we are ready to take in His Word, ready to concentrate, ready to set aside the distractions in our minds, the things we did yesterday, the lack of sleep last night, the things we're going to do this afternoon, to focus right now on what God has to teach us in His Word. So we take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege to fellowship together around the teaching of your word, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word is absolute truth. Jesus prayed to you that we would be sanctified by truth because your word is truth. It is absolute truth. It is undeniable, unshakable, infallible, inerrant truth. And now, Father, as we Study it. We pray that we would be willing to let our thinking be exposed to the searchlight of your truth, that we might be willing to expose the errors in our own thinking, that we might replace it with the truth of your word, and that we might continue to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Fellowship is important. Fellowship is not something that just happens because you're saved. Fellowship is the result of having a life that is cleansed from sin. The problem is that we continue to sin as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We still have a sin nature, and even though we are saved, it does not mean that our sin nature is diminished, that it is any less active, or that it is any less evil. It is still the same sin nature that we had before we were saved. The only difference is that the sin nature no longer is our absolute, unshakable master. Before we're saved, we are under the tyranny of the sin nature. There is no option but to live on the basis of the sin nature. The unbeliever has no alternative. But the believer, because he has a new nature, he is given a new spiritual life. And because of what Christ did on the cross, the bondage of the sin nature is broken. And we are no longer under that tyranny unless, of course, we choose to sin and then we put ourselves back under the tyranny of the sin nature. But there is a divine solution, and we have studied it many, many times. And that is the subject of uh, 1 John many times, and that is confession of sin. And again, he returns to that theme in 1 John 2, verse 12. So open your Bibles there. And I want to remind you, review a little bit of what we covered last time, and then conclude this verse and focus on its relationship to the remainder of this chapter. It is not by happenstance that John moves back to the theme of forgiveness in verse 12 he does so because he is laying the foundation for what will take place in the remainder of this chapter in verse 12 he says I am writing to you little children and there he uses the Greek word technia, technion for little children it is uh, a diminutive form of "technon," and it is used as a as a way of addressing the entire congregation. He is not focusing on immature believers. He's addressing the entire congregation, and we see that he does, does so and uses this phrase several times in this epistle. In chapter 2, verse 1, he addresses the entire congregation as my little children. In verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children. In verse twenty eight of chapter two he says, and now little children. And he explains what who and what these we are as children in verse one and two of chapter three. There he says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we, that is all of us, we including himself, we've seen we've done a detailed study of his use of the first person plural pronoun starting in verse one that the we is almost an editorial we referring to himself, but secondarily it includes the other apostles and other believers, including this congregation. He says, we should be called children of God. And in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, we're told, "...as many as received him," that is, to accept Jesus Christ as Savior, "...as many as received him, to them he gave the power and the authority to be called," the children of God, so that this term relates to the entire body of Christ without distinction. We are all children of God, and you become a child of God only by putting your faith alone in Christ alone, only by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul gives a very concise explanation of the gospel. We believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. That's the essence of the Gospel, believing both in the death as, believing in the death as well as the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ because the, the death itself, His spiritual death on the cross before He died physically, solved the problem of spiritual death, the penalty of sin. His physical death and subsequent resurrection demonstrated that he had conquered the consequences of sin and would give us victory over death in the resurrection. So that is the gospel. And once we believe the gospel, we become children. We are adopted into God's royal family, and that can never be taken away from us. So we become spiritual aristocracy at the instant of salvation. So John writes, I'm writing to you little children, all the believers in this congregation. He had pastored in Ephesus and there were other churches such as Laodicea and others in small villages outside of Ephesus and he had pastored them as well. But he is not physically present with them and he is able to minister to them spiritually by writing, them, writing letters to them. He did not have a tape ministry. He did not have an Internet ministry available to him. They used the latest technology available to reach congregations, and it was an absentee form of teaching. And that is legitimate when there is no other source of doctrine around. And in many cases in the ancient world, they didn't have, and especially in the early church, they didn't have a pastor-teacher who was trained, who could teach in a local congregation, so they received letters from the apostles, and that was their source of doctrine. And they would read those letters, and they were written to be read at one sitting. Because there's so much that we can glean from them, we take a lot of time to study them verse by verse, as they did as well in the early church. But they would initially read the entire letter to the congregation. So he is writing to them, to the extended congregation in the villages and towns outside of Ephesus. He says, I am writing to you. And then last week we corrected the translation. It is a Hati clause in the Greek, and Hati has three different meanings. It can introduce discourse like indirect discourse or direct discourse. Greek didn't have quotation marks like we have in English, so they would use a Hati. And it would be either direct discourse, which would be translated comma-quote, or it would be indirect discourse. He said that and then a paraphrase. It also has a causal meaning. It means because. Now, if it were translated because, it would say that what the, 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 their forgiveness of sins was the cause of his writing. But there's not a cause effect there. He's not writing because their sins have been forgiven. I'm not teaching you the word because your sins are forgiven. I'm teaching you for a number of other reasons. But as part of the reason, your sins are forgiven. And so that's what's called an ep-exegetical use of Hati. I am writing to you, little children, for the reason that your sins have been forgiven you. He's going to explain that as a foundation to what he says in the coming section. I'm writing to you, little children, for your sins are forgiven you because of his namesake. And we saw last time in our study that the, whenever you see in the... In the Bible, an emphasis on on God's name, always think in terms of his character, his attributes, who and what God is, because the name means his character, Because for his character's sake, because of who and what God is. And we looked at the essence of God last time, and we saw that that we boil it down to ten basic attributes that he is. Sovereign, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscient, omnip- omnipresent, omnipotent, veracity, and immutability. That's the essence of God. But we're going to focus here on three. His righteousness, His justice, and His love. And that comprises His integrity. His righteousness is the standard of His character. He is perfect righteousness. And so His, His character, can He can do nothing to violate His standard, which is perfect righteousness. Justice is the application of the standard. So what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. But what the righteousness of God rejects, because it doesn't meet his standard, the justice of God then disciplines or curses. But the love of God provides the motivation to provide the perfect solution. Now, the fourth element of his integrity that's emphasized in many passages is truth. For example, the psalmist tells us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, but love and truth go forth from it. And we will see a little later on in our study that this is the, the basis for forgiveness. As the righteousness of God is satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross, so in his justice he can bless us, his love motivated him, to send His Son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And on the basis of His absolute truth, then, He is free to save us and to sanctify us, that is, to mature us as believers. Now, John is saying here, I am writing to you, little children, for your sins are forgiven, that is, they are wiped away. Afiemi means to, to completely forgive, to remove, to wipe out. Your sins are wiped out or blotted out because of His character, because of who and what He is, not because of who and what we are. It's not based on how uh, sincere we are. It's not based on, on our own bartering with God that, God, I'll never do it again, so please forgive me. It's based on the fact that at the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history, past, present, and future. Every sin's paid for. So the issue at salvation is not what have you done. The issue is what has Christ done. And are you willing to put your faith in Christ to rely exclusively upon him to save you? Now, after salvation, we still have a problem with sin because we still have a sin nature. And that's where the doctrine of forgiveness comes in. And so often what we do is we emphasize the word forgiveness. And forgiveness is an important word. Aphiame is used many times in the New Testament. But a more significant word is the word cleansing. Now, we saw last time that the basic promise in the New Testament on forgiveness is in 1 John 1, 9, which we've studied extensively. If we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the word unrighteousness is the Greek word adikē, which means sin. How do we know that? John defines it for us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 17. There he says, all unrighteousness, that's adike, all unrighteousness is sin. So whenever we commit a sin, it has an effect on our relationship with God, not our eternal relationship, but our temporal relationship, so that we are out of fellowship, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And in order to be restored to fellowship, then we have to confess our sins, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins. But the reason is cleansing. There has to be a cleansing from sin. Now, last time I took us through the Old Testament. I just want to remind you of what we looked at last time and then add a couple of points to it. First of all, we saw in the Old Testament that this is portrayed in the consecration or anointing of the high priest in Israel. When the high priest was anointed uh, as high priest, at the beginning of his ministry as high priest, he was washed from head to toe, took a bath. And the, the Hebrew word that is used there is the word rachatz. And that looks like this. And, uh, R-A-C-H-A-T-Z now, there was only this one word in Hebrew, and it can refer to either a partial or a complete washing. But the Jewish translators of the Old Testament in the third century, second and third century BC, when they translated from Hebrew to Greek in what is called the Septuagint, it's abbreviated LXX for 70. Sept, the SEPT in Septuagint refers to 70. It was, the, um, the, the legend is that 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the Old Testament. Really, all they did was translate the Pentateuch. But when they translated it, they realized, they understood that rachatz had two connotations. The first is a complete washing or a bath, and they used the Greek word luo. L-U-O-O, with an omega at the end, luo, to to translate the complete washing from head to toe. Then there were other contexts where it was clear there was not a complete bath, but just a a partial washing of the hands or the feet. And there they used another Greek word, nipto, N-I-P-T-O. And those words become important because... They are used by our Lord at the time that He washed the disciples' feet during the upper, when they were in the upper room, the night before He went to the cross, the night before uh, He instituted, or the night when He instituted the Lord's table. And the purpose for the washing of the high priest was to picture their cleansing. At the beginning of His ministry, He was given a bath, but each time after that, that He would go into the tabernacle, He would have to go to the to the laver, and there he would have to wash his hands and wash his feet. And that was to signify that the first washing was was what happens when we're saved. It's positional sanctification. It is when we are identified with Christ and we are saved. But after salvation, we still have a sin nature. We still do things that are sinful. We have uh, mental attitude sins. We have sins of the tongue. We have personal sins and overt sins. And when we sin... We still need to be cleansed. And that was what that pictured was the priest still needed to be cleansed whenever we went in the presence of God. Now, that is a portrayal for us because like the Levites and like Aaron, we are priests. Every believer in the church age, the age in which we live, becomes a priest to God at the instant of salvation. You didn't know you were all priests. You also become a saint. So whatever your name is, you are St. Bill or St. Jeff or St. Jim And that is what you are a saint. Every believer is sanctified completely at salvation. It's called positional sanctification. And one of the Sunday school teachers was asking their class not long ago, gave them a little test and said, name three saints that you know. He had some visitors that day and they kept scratching their heads trying to remember some of the saints they were taught from whatever church they came from. But no, just look around the room and pick three people, and those are saints. They're believers. We are all positionally sanctified at salvation, and that's what that pictures. It's pictured again with the Levitical priests in Numbers chapter 8. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 8. Numbers is the fourth book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. Numbers chapter 8, and here we are given the details related to the setting apart. And The word in Hebrew for setting apart is kadash, and that's the same word for holy. It's the same word for sanctification. So it's a picture of how they are set apart to the service of God. Just, I just want you to notice the terminology used here. When they were prepared to anoint and appoint the Levites for the beginning of their service, look at verse 6. God is speaking to Moses. He says, Take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. And thus you shall do to them for their cleansing. I want you to notice that the issue is cleansing. Over and over again, that is the issue in our life, is that we need to be cleansed from sin. You know, some people every now and then say, Well, gosh, the only passage that really talks about confession is 1 John one nine. So how can you make such an important issue... Out of First 1 John 1, 1.9. The issue isn't confession, folks. The issue is cleansing from sin. And that's what we hear over and over and over again is the need for cleansing. Thus you shall do to them for their cleansing. Sprinkle purifying water on them and let them use a razor over their whole body and wash their clothes and they shall be clean. So this is the same thing that was pictured at the initial washing of the high priest at the beginning, there's a complete cleansing. Then let them take a bull with its grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil a second bowl, and you shall take for a sin offering. So there's the presence of the sin offering. There's the basis for the cleansing. That's what the picture is. The washing is based on the fact that there's a sacrifice. In the New Testament, we realize the two come together in Christ. Christ paid the penalty. He's the sacrifice, and in faith alone, in Christ alone. There is cleansing. Now, there's two different types of cleansing, as we'll see. There's the washing, partial, full washing, and the partial washing. And then if you look down to verse 15, we find the word cleansing it again. Then after, the Le- after that, the Levites may go in to serve the tent of meeting, but you shall cleanse them and present them as a wave offering. So there is the emphasis on washing and cleansing for the Levitical priests. Now, let's turn to another passage. In Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 is the key verse, but I want you to note some things about the context. Isaiah is writing in the 7th century B.C. at a time when Israel has succumbed to idolatry and apostasy, and there are very few in the nation that are saved. I want you to notice in this chapter, before we look at verse 16, the context. God is bringing an indictment against Israel. It's like a law court. He's the prosecuting attorney and he is presenting his case against the Jews. Isaiah chapter 1, look at verse 2. Isaiah is towards the uh, last third, the beginning of the last third of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. God begins the indictment in verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for Yahweh speaks. Yahweh is the covenant God of Israel. He is the, when you see the word Yahweh, it always seems to in, indicate, emphasize God's relationship with his chosen people and the basis for that relationship in the Mosaic Law. For Yahweh speaks, sons I have reared and brought up, and they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey, its master's manger. But Israel does not know, and the people don't understand. They are ignorant of doctrine, and they have rejected the Old Testament version of salvation, which was faith in the coming of the Messiah. They looked forward to God's promise that a Savior would be provided. They didn't know all the details we know, but they knew God had promised to save them, and He would provide a Savior, and they were to trust in that. So they were not trusting in the coming of Christ as their Savior and they didn't understand it. Verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned, sounds like judges, period, they have abandoned Yahweh, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. A threefold indictment, they've abandoned, they've despised and they've turned away. They're, They're not saved. And then skip down and look at verse 16. In verse 16, God says, here's the remedy. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. And there, when the translators of the Septuagint translated this into Greek, they used the word luo for wash, not nipto, indicating they understood that the issue here is salvation. There is a cleansing that takes place at the instant of salvation, and they needed to be saved. And that's the thrust of verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. They were not saved. And then look at verse 18. This clinches it. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. This is what happens at the instant of salvation, is that our sins are no longer an issue. They, we are washed clean, and we are positionally sanctified at salvation. Now, the next thing that I emphasized last time was not only the, the distinction between cleansing and the full washing and partial washing, but that this was the background for understanding what Jesus said to the disciples in John 13. And we saw that, that they had all washed. That was standard. If you were going to go out to eat at somebody's house in the ancient world, especially a formal dinner like Passover, you would wash completely. You'd take a bath. Just, just because it wasn't Saturday night yet doesn't mean you didn't take a bath. So they would take their bath and they came And Jesus then sat down to wash their feet. Because in the ancient world, when you wore sandals everywhere and you walked out in the dirty streets and there was all kind of refuse and pollution, uh, not to mention just regular dirt, dirt and dust and mud out in the street, your feet would be dirty. So when you would come into a house, rather than track dirt into the house, you would take off your shoes and a servant would wash your feet. Well, in this case, our Lord took the position of a servant because he is illustrating something. He's going to wash their feet. Peter said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, Peter, you will have no part with me. And we saw that word for part is a technical word for an inheritance in the ancient world. And Jesus is saying, you will not have any inheritance in the kingdom if you don't let me uh, cleanse you, wash your feet. So Peter then said, well, Lord, Lua, wash me all over. And Jesus said, you know, if you have been washed all over, you only need to wash your feet. And so the Lord reemphasizes that salvation gives you complete cleansing, but there is still a need for partial spot cleansing, as it were, after salvation to deal with those sins that come after salvation, post-salvation And we saw then, we looked at Revelation 3.20 and saw that cleansing was necessary for fellowship. There is the picture of the Lord standing outside the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in and and dine with him and sup with him and he with me. And that that is a picture of fellowship. But there are other passages that emphasize the need for fellowship and cleansing in the uh, New Testament as well. For example, in James 4.8. The command there to these believers who are clearly out of fellowship. They were operating on human viewpoint. They were operating on sin at the beginning of chapter 4. James condemns them for their mental attitude, sins, their antagonism and hatred towards one another, bitter jealousy and envy. And here is the solution, verse 8. Draw near to God. See, they're out of fellowship. Our sins separate us from God, not eternally, because we're already saved. But they separate us from God temporally. There's a break in that relationship. For example, in your own family, you know that you might have a close relationship with your mom or your dad. Whatever you do, they will always be your parents. I mean, the law, they can disinherit you, but they're still your parents. Now, if you do something to disobey your parents and they're angry at you, then that's whatever you do separates. Something has come between you and there needs to be a resolution of that. There needs to be sometimes an apology, but there needs to be, that issue needs to be resolved before there can be a restoration of that close rapport with your parents. And that's the issue of forgiveness. When we sin... We break fellowship with God. There's something that hinders our rapport with God, and so we need to draw near to God. That's the imperative here in verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Now, how do you do that? That's the next phrase. Cleanse your hands. That's the same word we have in 1 John 1 9. Katha reads, so it means to cleanse, to purify, to wipe away, to blot away. Uh, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. It picks up. He's writing to a Jewish audience. James was written to a primarily Jewish Christian audience. And so when they hear the word cleanse your hands, what are they thinking about? They're thinking about the operation of the priest coming into the temple or tabernacle and washing his hands at the laver before he goes into the presence of God. So as soon as he says cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, that's the issue. Is purification of what's going on mentally in terms of confession of sin and cleansing. So, cleansing is for the purpose of forgiveness then, and we're back to our passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, for your sins are forgiven you because of His character. And we saw last time that the verb here for forgiveness is a plural perfect. It's a perfect passive indicative. Now, the perfect normally emphasizes something that's been completed in the past. And if the emphasis is on the present results of a past action, that's what's called an intensive perfect. And that's what's going on here is he's emphasizing the present results of a past action. But the perfect tense also has a gnomic sense. And a gnomic sense, I explained last time, means this is a general principle of proverb, that it always happens. And so, uh, by understanding it that way, we see he's not just talking about something that happened in, in the past, but something that is ongoing as a result of a past action. Now, let's stop a minute and review something I've said before I pull this, start to pull this together. First of all, we've seen that there needed to be a bath. This is analogous to salvation. And at salvation, there is forgiveness. So that's one type of forgiveness. Then, after salvation, there was the washing of the hands and the feet. This pictures ongoing forgiveness in pro- progressive sanctification, and this too is called forgiveness. So there's two different categories of forgiveness. There's a forgiveness one at salvation and a forgiveness two for post-salvation forgiveness. And if you don't understand that there are two different categories of forgiveness, then you're going to misunderstand several passages of Scripture. So cleansing, the purpose for cleansing is for forgiveness. Now, what is John really getting at here in verse 12? He's talking about grace. That's what underlies this, is the grace of God. Forgiveness is a function of God's grace. What the righteousness of God demanded, the justice of God provides, and the love of God motivated him to provide a solution to man's problems through grace. Now, this is what's emphasized in numerous passages in the Old Testament related to forgiveness. Too often people get the idea because of liberal theology that the God of the Old Testament is this harsh, negative, judgmental God and the God of the New Testament is this loving, forgiving, gracious God. Well, that's false. Look at what the Old Testament states here in Exodus chapter 34. This is at the time after Israel's rebellion with the golden calf and Moses has destroyed the original tablets for the Ten Commandments and now he's carving out a second set and God is going to write out the 10 commandments again and the Lord passed by in front of him that is in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord the Lord God is com, the Lord the Lord God compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth now I've emphasized four words there in the Hebrew that help us understand what's going on here he is compassionate this is the expression of grace And mercy, mercy and mercy and grace are the expressions of God's love. Mercy and grace are always directed towards fallen creatures, undeserving creatures. Grace means God's unmerited favor, his undeserved blessing. Emphasis on unmerited and undeserved. The reason mercy and compassion and grace are not part of the essence box is because they are dependent upon fallen creatures. And no no characteristic of God can be a primary attribute if it is creaturely dependent. Because then God would have to be dependent on his creatures to be God. And then by definition, he wouldn't be God because God, by definition, isn't creaturely dependent. He is independent. So he is compassionate. That's the expression of his love. Compassion, It's Raham is often translated mercy as well. That's the application of grace. He is compassionate and gracious Hanan is the Hebrew for grace he is slow to anger that means he is literally long to anger long suffering he, he, is, he waits a long time before he drops the boom on us he is abounding in loving kindness and this just doesn't mean love it is the Hebrew word chesed which means he is faithful and loyal to the object of his love it is unconditional God doesn't give up on us because we go into rebellion The Jews had just, while Moses was on top of Mount Sinai getting the law from God, the Jews are down at the base of the mountain uh, talking Aaron into taking all of their gold and building a a golden calf so they could worship this idol. So they're in complete rebellion against God, and yet God still deals with them in chesed and truth. Truth is the expression of his righteousness, his absolute truth. And then in verse 7, Exodus 34.7 God keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Those three synonyms summarize everything you could say about sin in the Old Testament. He is a God of forgiveness and grace even in the Old Testament. This is reiterated in numerous other passages. For example, Psalm 65.3 Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, the psalmist says, thou dost forgive them. And then in Psalm 79, 9. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of thy name. See, that's the same idiom that's used in, in, in 1 John two twelve, For the glory of thy name, because of who and what you are. Because of your character, not because of who and what we are. Psalm 85, 2. Thou didst forgive the iniquity of thy people, thou didst cover all their sins. See, there's no sin that you and I can commit that's too great for the grace of God. There's no sin that we could commit that God did not know about billions and billions of years ago in eternity past. We don't ever surprise God. You may surprise yourself, you may surprise your spouse, you may surprise your parents or your kids, but you will never surprise God. He has known for all eternity what our sins are. Psalm 86.5, For Thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving lovingkindness it again to all who call upon You. God is ready to forgive us. He is not waiting for us to bargain, to reach a certain point, to, to try to uh, convince Him we'll never do it again. He stands ready to forgive. Psalm 130, verse 4, But there is forgiveness with Thee that Thou mayest be feared. Notice. Motivation here is linked to the forgiveness of God. And that's going to be John's point here. It is what motivates you in the Christian life. And what should motivate us is the grace of God. Because we understand all that God has done for us. Part of the problem of living in a relativistic society is that we have minimized the sinfulness of sin. And so often when we emphasize grace and talk about grace... We emphasize the fact that sin is not the issue. Sin is not the issue. It's paid for by Christ on the cross. But that doesn't mean sin is less sinful. Sin is horrible. Sin is destructive. Sin not only affects us spiritually, but the consequences of sin in our own lives, in our own soul, can be devastating. We can, we can uh, uh, through negative volition, commit a sin just one time when we're 18 or 19 years of age... Maybe we go to a party and get drunk, and on the way home have an accident that kills somebody, or we somebody in the car is maimed, and those consequences are with us for the rest of our life. One sin can damage us and cause reverberations throughout the rest of our lives. We get into carnality, and then God has to discipline us, and we can commit, uh, we can spend the rest of our life dealing with the consequences of that discipline. That's that's what happened with David. When David sinned with Bathsheba, then she got pregnant. He wanted to cover it up, so he had her husband put in a position in, in, in the battle so that he would get killed. And that was known as conspiracy to commit murder and murder. And because of all of that, God had a fourfold punishment for him. He didn't lose his salvation. He did get back in fellowship. Psalm 51, he confessed his sin to God, and God forgave him and restored him to him the joy of his salvation. But David spent the rest of his life dealing with the consequences of that sin. Sin is horrible. Sin eats away at our soul. The carnality is devastating. We forget that sometimes. And when we forget how horrible and destructive sin is, then we lose sight of how valuable the grace of God is. If we don't focus on how sinful we are and the devastating consequences, then we don't understand how fantastic grace is. If we diminish the sinfulness of sin, we're also diminishing the depth of God's grace. And yet, that in the Scripture is what is to motivate us to fear God. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 130, verse 4. There is forgiveness with thee that for the purpose that you may be feared. And see, what is the beginning of wisdom in the Old Testament? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. That is what is to motivate us to learn about God. And if we don't learn about God and to know who God is, then we're not motivated to obey Him. The core issue in the spiritual life, the core motivation, is understanding grace. Another passage is Isaiah forty three twenty five. I, even I, says the Lord, and the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. Notice, once again, the issue is God's character, not our character. He does it for His sake. And I will not remember your sins. If God's not going to remember your sins, why do you keep beating yourself over the head because of your sins? Now, when I talk about emphasizing the sinfulness of sin and coming to grips with how horrible and destructive sin is, I'm not talking about a personal sin that you're going to be beating yourself over the head with in terms of guilt. Because guilt is a sin in itself. Guilt is saying, God, you really didn't do it all at the cross. I have to help you by feeling sorry for my sins, feeling guilty about it. So I'm going to help you out, and maybe when I've been guilty enough for long enough, then maybe I'll actually get, finally get forgiveness. But that's the opposite of the promise in Isaiah 43, 25, where God says, I will not remember your sins. This is reiterated in Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. They are no longer an issue. Once we confess them, forget them, and move forward. That sin is no longer the issue. We are forgiven. Whether you feel like it or not, God has forgiven you because God is faithful to His promise. And His promise is not based on our feelings. Furthermore, in Isaiah 44:22 God said, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud. Just downstairs, we've been teaching a song to the kids called God Has Blotted Them Out. And the kids sing it, and they sang it real loud, and I had them shout. I don't know if anybody, maybe Ken heard them singing. But um, the key in there, they say, how do you know that God has blotted them out? Because of Isaiah 44:22 and 3. So you can drill your kids on that. But that's the verse. God has blotted them out. He's wiped out our transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. He says, return to me for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy. See, the result of forgiveness is a mental attitude, joy. We have peace, we have calm, we have contentment. We are relaxed now because sin is no longer the issue we don 't have to get involved in in a lot of mental attitude, sins like guilt and worry and anxiety over what might happen now Now, the divine discipline may continue as it did with David, but God also gave him the grace to handle the problems so that those those negative the negative discipline, the cursing from the sin, was turned into blessing and was because he handled it on the basis of God's provision, he could grow and advance in his spiritual life. New Testament reiterates this as well in terms of two categories of forgiveness. So let's stop for a minute and look at five points on the doctrine of two forgivenesses. The doctrine of two forgivenesses. First of all, every person is born with three strikes against them. Every person is born with three strikes against them. They are, first of all, Adam's original sin. Adam was a designated head of the human race. He was our representative. It's called in theology our federal head. His was the sin that counted, not Eve's. Eve's sin affected only Eve. But when Adam disobeyed and ate from the fruit, all of nature fell, Adam fell, and the entire human race fell. When we are born, we are born with a sin nature. That's number two. And God, at the instant of our salvation, imputes, I mean, at the instant of our birth, imputes to our sin nature Adam's original sin. So that we are guilty, this is legal guilt, of Adam's original sin. What God knew was that just as Adam made that choice, each and every one of us put in the same position would have made the same choice. Adam's original sin. We're guilty of that. We're guilty because we have a sin nature. We are corrupt. Down to the very core of our being, we are corrupted by sin. Therefore, we can't have fellowship with God because we possess a sin nature. We, are sinner. we, we sin because we are sinners. Now, think about this. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. What that means is you commit sin because you are born with a corrupt constitution. You are born with a sin nature that affects every aspect of your thought, every aspect of who and what you are. And because you are born a sinner, you then commit acts of personal sin. Your personal sin does not make you a sinner. You are a sinner because of your sin nature and Adam's original sin. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the first thing he had to deal with was the effect of Adam's original sin and that sin nature. And secondarily, personal sin. Personal sin is the consequence of the first two. But when we are saved at the cross, when we are saved, excuse me, when Christ died on the cross, Adam's original sin is dealt with, the sin nature is dealt with, and there is forgiveness. The slate is wiped clean. We are declared righteous. We have been imputed or given the righteousness of Christ. And we are forgiven. Also, all sins from the point of birth up to the point that we trust Christ as our Savior, all of those pre-salvation sins are forgiven. So there is forgiveness for pre-salvation sins. So that is what I will call F1. Forgiveness 1. All, sin, all condemnation based on Adam's original sin and sin nature is dealt with, and all condemnation based on our personal sins are dealt with. But what about all those sins that come after salvation, our post-salvation sins? Because of what Christ did on the cross, those, the penalty for those sins is paid for. But the issue is Cleansing. In Isaiah chapter 6, we get a picture of the throne of God, and Isaiah comes before the throne of God, and he says, Woe is me, man of unclean lips. And one of the cherubim picks up a, a hot coal and brings it. Now, Isaiah is already saved, but he brings this hot coal and puts it on his lips as a sign that he, that he needed to be cleansed. There needed to be purification before he could come into the presence of God. I, in, in, in Psalm 66:14, we're told that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Post-salvation sin breaks fellowship with God. We've been forgiven with forgiveness one at salvation, but there has to be ongoing forgiveness for post-salvation sins. A good verse for forgiveness at salvation is Acts 10:43. Of him all the prophets bear witness, this is Peter talking, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, that is on the basis of his character, his integrity, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. That is forgiveness at salvation. John 13 pictured the post-salvation forgiveness. It is based on the grace of God, and that is what John is reminding us of in verse 12. I am writing to you, all you believers, as children of God, for your sins are forgiven you because of his name's sake. That's our motivation. Now, let's look at the structure of what we're about to get into. I have stated that 1 John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 2 comprise the overall introduction to this epistle. It's divided into three sections. John wants to get three things across. First of all, he hits the main issue in 1-1 through 1-4, and that's fellowship, and it's based on right doctrine and, secondly, right action. The problem that they were facing was that there were those who had a false view of who Jesus was because of the effects of Gnosticism and Docetism, and we studied that. Then in 1-5 down to 2:11. He introduces the main ideas, and this includes walking in the light and the importance of key spiritual skills. The first section from 1.5 to 2.2 focuses on basic understanding of forgiveness and how you walk in the light. Then from 2.3 down to 2.11, he was dealing with more advanced spiritual concepts, the whole concept of love. Personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. And now, starting in verse 12, he's going to explain his purpose, and he's going to address it to different elements in the congregation. We've already seen that the whole congregation is referred to as technion, as children. But then they're subdivided into three groups, depending on spiritual maturity. They are called fathers, pater, In verse 13, I am writing to you fathers. Secondly, I am writing to you young men. neoniskoi. Young men in the plural. Neoniskos, singular. I am writing to you children. And there it's not technon, it's paideia. So you have three different groups here. And they are going to be they are going to demonstrate three different levels of spiritual advance. The the youngest spiritual child in spiritual the spiritual childhood, spiritual immaturity is technon. Young men neoniskos ne, and or neoniskoi in the plural and pater for the fathers. Now, verse thirteen introduces the three categories. Let's just think in terms of structure. Verse thirteen introduces the three categories. I'm writing to you, fathers, young men, and children, babes. And then in verse fourteen he's going to come back. And he's going to say the same thing to the fathers he said the first time. And I want you to notice, what he says to the fathers is, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. Look at verse 14. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. He says the same thing. Notice, he, the fathers are mature. They don't need to be warned against false doctrine or deception or getting involved in sin because they have moved to a higher level of spiritual maturity. Then he addresses the young men, the Neoniskoi. And this is introduced in the middle of verse 14. I have written to you young men. Now, where does he mention children again? Look at verse 18. Children, not little children, not technon, children paideon. See, he slows down. He says, I've written to you fathers. Now, you guys have hit maturity. You've gone through all of the basic testing that you encountered as, as, babe, as young babes, immature children. You've gone through the testing of spiritual adolescence, and you've hit, finally arrived at spiritual maturity. He doesn't have a whole lot to say to them. But he has a lot to say to those who are spiritual adolescents. And that's the focus of verse 14b through 17. And then he addresses the children. Starting in 18 down through the end of 27, he addresses the immature believer. So that's the structure. That's where we're going. And notice the problem that they both face has to do with the cosmic system. Now, I want to take the last ten minutes or so this morning and review our spiritual skills. Because you see what we have here is a picture that we're going to build again. Is the picture of the soul fortress that God has provided for us. It is... Living inside this soul fortress, this it's a shield, it's a buckler. The Old Testament speaks many times about God is our refuge. Well, God has provided us with a doctrinal refuge. And in that doctrinal refuge is the place of living the spiritual life. And the the bricks, the rocks that make up the, the walls of this this fortress are the spiritual skills that we learn in our advance. In, in a spiritual life, you know, a skill is something that is, is burdensome to learn sometimes. You, you repeat it over and over again until it's just boring. I, I remember when I was a kid and I had to take piano lessons and you had to play scales over. I, I haven't sat down at the piano and play. I have one, but I haven't sat down at it in probably four or five years, but I could probably walk over there and sit down at the piano and play any number of scales just because I did them over and over again every single morning before I went to school from the time I was in the second grade till I got out of high school. And that's what a skill is. It's something you practice over and over again. In, in band, I played trombone. and We had to play these technique exercises. There's no melody there. It's just a technique. You just do it over and over again. In sports, you get out there in, in, in football and you have your, your uh, blocking exercises and the coach has you out there hitting those blocking stands over and over and over again. In ballet, the same thing. Every single thing you do in life is predicated on mastering certain physical or mental skills. And you have to practice them over and over and over again till you're bored to death, until you can do them in your sleep, so that when the time comes to have to function in those areas, you do it automatically. The pressure, then, is not an issue. And that's what these spiritual skills are. And that's why every time we teach Bible class... We go through the process of silent prayer and using 1 John one nine. Some people say, well, that's, I've been criticized and heard people say, well, that's just so mechanical. Playing scales, I bet any, you think of any great concert pianist you've ever heard, and they've played those musical scales over and over again. You think of any great composer, Beethoven, Bach, and they practice those skills over and over again. And playing the scales is just as mechanical as anything else. But it's the key to being able to play anything else that's a beauty and wonder. You think of a a dancer, and they work on those basic dance maneuvers over and over again. They may not be so beautiful when you just watch them in isolation. But when you put them on the stage in a ballet, it creates something of beauty, something of tremendous style and grace. And the same thing is true in the spiritual life. And the reason I do that over and over again is to drill in the mechanics so people will remember that I'm supposed to confess sin every time I sin. And it's a reminder. It is, if it's mechanical to you, then that's your problem, not my problem. But that's how we learn anything is by focusing on basic mechanics. And then all of a sudden, some, later on in life, we realize we've mastered it. And it's something that comes naturally with great fluidity. So we have to work on these basic skills, and for the spiritual childhood, there are five basic skills. The first is confession, First 1 John 1, 1.9, learning to keep short accounts with God, admitting our sins every time we sin, and the result is the filling of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just the filling of the Holy Spirit, it is walking by the Holy Spirit. That's the command in Galatians 5.16 you are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit and you will not it will be impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh so the drill is to learn how to walk by means of the spirit and that's done on the basis of the filling of the spirit Ephesians 5:18 the third the third technique that we we'll work on is a faith rest drill the faith rest drill starts with mixing faith with the promises of God You believe something. You don't just believe anything. You believe something specific. God said He would do this. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. One of the reasons I recite those verses over and over again every time we start church is because that's the only way any of you are ever going to get it drilled into your head so you'll remember it. And I go over that and say those same verses every week, and I see many of you lip-sync with me, and hopefully they're drilled into you, so someday when you're out in some situation, those promises are going to come. You're going to hear my voice in your head, and you're going to remember that promise, so you'll have something to mix your faith with. Because if you don't have any promises memorized in your soul to mix faith with, and when you get out there in a crisis, how are you going to mix faith with a promise if the promise isn't embedded in your thinking? So I go over those every single Sunday, same same things over and over again. Maybe in another year or two, I'll change and we'll move to another set of promises. Once you get those mastered, that's a faith risk drill. It starts with mixing promises with the mixing faith with the promises of God, and then moves to using doctrinal rationales and reaching doctrinal conclusions where we've learned doctrine. We think, well, God, you're omnipotent. That means you're all-powerful. And this problem that I have, well, it really isn't that big of a deal when I compare it to your omnipotence. Therefore, you're able to handle it. With God, all things are possible. That's a doctrinal rationale. Then there's grace orientation, understanding that everything is based on God's grace and who and what He is, not who and what I am. And that has implications for humility because it's not me, it's God. So I have to learn humility. And as I learn humility, then I begin to be oriented to life correctly. And I learn doctrine. And now I begin to have my thinking shaped by the Word of God and oriented to reality by the Word of God. And that lays the groundwork That For everything else in the spiritual life. You have to master these five skills or you won't go anywhere in the spiritual life. And always remember, when you were 8 years old, 9 years old, or 12 years old, how did you want to be treated? You wanted to be treated like an adult. You wanted to be an adult. You wanted to do adult things. Why? Because you knew that life began when you were an adult. The same thing is true in the spiritual life. If all you want to do is be a spiritual baby and show up at church once a week and never go anywhere, then you're never going to experience anything that God has for you. Life begins in the spiritual life at maturity, not in infancy. The purpose of infancy and adolescence is to go through the training so that you can be a productive adult. And that's where the real uh, blessing in the Christian life lies. The next stage is spiritual adolescence coming to grips with where we're going, that this is training ground for eternity. It is developing a personal sense of our eternal destiny where we make decisions today based on the future. You you watch it with your kids. They make decisions today based on what it's going to do for them in five minutes or an hour. They can't think about tomorrow or the next day or or the next year. You can't motivate a five-year-old kid with the impact it's going to have on him when he's 25. He can't think that far ahead. But when they enter into adolescence and move through those later teen years, sooner or later it begins to dawn on them that the decisions they make today are going to impact tomorrow, next week, next year, next semester, and that they begin to make decisions today based on long-term consequences. That's part of maturity. Maturity comes when you can postpone gratification. That comes with a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We know we are destined to rule and reign with Christ in the millennium and that our ability to perform at that time is going to be determined by the doctrine we learn and we apply today. Then we move into spiritual adulthood where we're called adult sons in Romans 8.14. The first three skills we work on have to do with love. Our personal love for God romans five five our impersonal love for all mankind galatians five fourteen and occupation with christ hebrews two two we 're focusing on christ we 're learning to live as Christ lived, think as Christ thinks, and that is the love triplex and the consequence of all of that is it brings stability into our soul, tranquility to our thinking, so that we can relax and we have the joy that Christ has bequeathed to us so that we can fulfill the uh, mandate of James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance will have its maturing result. These are the bricks that go into that fortress that protects our soul. There's a picture of the fortress. We live inside the fortress. The entryway, the, the ramp that gets us in is 1 John 1-9. We confess our sin. What protects us is the application of all of these spiritual skills. Listen to what the psalmist said. Psalm 3.3, But thou, O Lord, art a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. Psalm 31.3, For thou art my rock and my fortress. For thy name's sake, for your character's sake, thou wilt lead and guide me. Psalm 71.3, Thou to me a rock of habitation, to which I may continually come. Thou hast given commandment to save me, for Thou art my rock and my fortress. That's Psalm 71.3. Psalm 91.2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 91.2. Psalm 18.2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 18.30. As for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 28.7 The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, that's inner happiness, and with my song I shall thank Him. Psalm 35.2 Take hold of buckler and shield, and rise up for my help psalm ninety one four he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. his faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark psalm 115, 9, O israel trust in the Lord he is their help and their shield psalm one hundred and nineteen one hundred and fourteen thou art my hiding place and my shield. I wait for thy word doctrinal orientation psalm one hundred and forty four two my loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge who subdues my people under me. This is the soul fortress. But when we sin, we go outside of that protection into enemy territory. That's the cosmic system. And John warns the young men about this, starting in verse 15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It is when we go outside of our fortress, we are in enemy territory. We are walking in darkness, First 1 John 1, seven. We are living in the cosmic system. And so John is going to spend a lot of time here warning about the cosmic system, about false doctrine, and what it means to walk in, the, in darkness. The only way back is to confess sin, 1 John 1, 9, and to get back in fellowship. That's what grace is all about. When we realize we have forgiveness, that's our motivation to go forward. Why are you here this morning? Why did you come here? Just to learn something? Or did you come here because you realized how much God had done for you in salvation? He had given you a new life. You have been bought with a price. And therefore, the result of that is that you're going to not waste this new life that God's given you, but you are going to learn everything about it so that you can maximize it, live for God, and glorify God because that's His purpose. If you're here just to show up once a week, then you're playing games with yourself and playing games with God. This is not just something we do on the side. It is everything. It determines your priorities. It's funny. We can always find time to do this thing or that thing. We can always find time to do the things that we like to do and be involved in our hobbies and our personal pleasures. But when you are influenced by the grace of God, then you always find time, you always arrange your schedule, and you always make doctrine the number one priority, and that is what determines the decisions we make in life because we understand what God has done for us, what He's provided us, and what He's going to do for us and where we're headed in eternity with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word to be challenged by the fact that you are our shield, our fortress, our buckler. You are our hiding place and our refuge. You are our strong tower. You have provided everything we need to face every issue in life. And you have given us everything we need that we can grow from being spiritual infants to spiritually mature, that we can be strong because of the doctrine that's in our own soul. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we have learned today, realizing that we are to live a life on the basis of where you are taking us in eternity, that this is our preparation time for an eternity with you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure, certain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make it both sure and certain. This is an opportunity for you to decide your eternal destiny. Scripture says all that you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't need to raise your hand, walk an aisle, join a church, make a bargain with God or any other human factor. All you have to do is make a decision as to what you are trusting for your eternal salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.